Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. March 2023 marks the 20th anniversary of Operation Iraqi Freedom, which toppled the government of Saddam Hussein. A war of choice whose authors claimed would solve the problems of the Middle East in the aftermath of 9-11. The conflict instead opened an era of new and bitter conflicts whose consequences are still felt from Baghdad to Baltimore to Bakhmut. The anniversary has thus unsurprisingly been the occasion for a variety of works considering the origins, course, and consequences of the war. For all the efforts to analyze and critique U.S. policy, however, there have been few serious efforts to understand Iraqi policy between the invasion of Kuwait in 1990 and the overthrow of Saddam Hussein in 2003. The notable exception here is Dr. Sam Helfont, whose deep immersion in Ba'ath Party documents has already produced a brilliant book on the political religious roots of the insurgency in Iraq, uh, published in 2018 as Compulsion in Religion, Saddam Hussein, Islam, and the Roots of Insurgency in Iraq. He's also been a guest here on A Better Peace to talk about his work back in 2021. But his newest book, Iraq Against the World, examines Iraq's international strategies from 1990 to 2003 and their impact on the post-Cold War order. Through his creative work in Iraqi sources, Dr. Helfont shows us how Saddam used a variety of influence operations to undermine the New World Order promised by George H.W. Bush with profound implications. As he concludes the book, quote, the Baathists frustrated American policies, chipped away at American alliances, and diluted American ambitions for the post-Cold War order. Baathist actions humbled proponents of a liberal international order and empowered its critics. American support for international liberalism stumbled and Americans became less willing to play a leading role in organizing a liberal world order. As a result, the post-American world is less likely to emerge within and through liberal internationalist institutions and more likely to emerge in conflict with them. Dr. Sam Helfont is an Iraq War veteran and assistant professor of strategy and policy in the Naval War Colleges program at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He holds a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from Princeton University, and we are delighted to have him with us today to talk about his work and its implications. Welcome back to A Better Peace, Dr. Sam Helfont. Thanks for having me, Ron. So Sam, do you think of this book as a sequel to or a development, further development of your previous work? How does it fit in with your larger scholarly agenda? No, I see it as, as actually quite different. When I began researching uh, my first book, which was my dissertation, uh, and it became my first book, I had thought that I would possibly look at both domestic Iraqi policy and uh, Iraqi foreign policy. Uh, it turned out that, that book was devoted almost entirely to domestic policy. 
so I had a bunch of uh, research left over from uh, that, that addressed foreign affairs. Uh, at the same time, I, I discovered in the course of writing that book and researching that book, an organization within the Ba'ath Party that outsiders didn't even know existed um, that was devoted to Iraqi foreign policy uh, under the Ba'athist regime. And the files within the archive for that organization shed tremendous light on on Iraqi strategy, Iraqi thinking, Iraqi worldview. Um, so I decided to use that as a basis to to write a new book um, on a subject that, as you mentioned, ha- hasn't really received enough attention. Yeah. I will say that when people talk about Iraq War One, say the first Gulf War, even though it's not really the first Gulf War, but the one the Americans think of as the first Gulf War in 1990-91, and when they think of the second Gulf War, 2003 basically to the present, um, people will note that that first time around, uh, the you know, the Bush administration succeeded in uh, pulling together a uh, broad international coalition. Whereas by the second war, um, because of disagreements at the UN Security Council, because of a breakdown of that coalition, we end up with the famous war of choice with the coalition of the willing. And this is usually, and not incorrectly, but is usually presented as a consequence of American policy. Your book, however, suggests that the Iraqis have a hand in making sure that the Americans would not be able to gather the same type of coalition. So uh, how would you uh, explain this to our audience, right? The role that the Iraqis tried to play in undermining the coalition against them and in what ways they succeeded. First of all, I think you put it perfectly to say the Iraqis had a hand. Um, they weren't the sole drivers, and this isn't any attempt to sort of let to let American American policy off of the hook. Right? Uh, there, there were problems uh, with American policy. Um, the Iraqis understood that this coalition that had formed against it during the Gulf War. Um, was going to be a problem, right? This was the, the same coalition that was imposing sanctions and and these weapons inspections on Iraq uh, throughout the 1990s. And the Iraqis attempted to break up this coalition. They had a number of of tools in their in their toolbox. Um, first, they had money, right, from from oil. Uh, this was latent money. It wasn't something they could actually access in the early. 1990s, uh, but they also had networks of, of throughout the Iraqi diaspora, with the Iraqi intelligence community all over the world, uh, and they had a sort of a system of allied actors, people, politicians um, who were uncomfortable with the the new world order that George H. W. Bush uh, wanted to create, and which Bill Clinton uh, continued to press for. Um, so the Iraqis were able to see where there were cracks in this system. The French weren't exactly happy to be just dictated to from Washington. Uh, Russian nationalists were still Russian nationalists. The Middle East still had all of the issues that had existed uh, previously in, in the Middle East. Uh, and the, the, what the Iraqis were able to do were inflame these sort of nascent feelings that were in these different countries to push them to abandon this coalition. Uh, what I try to show 
in the book is is how successful they actually were. For example, turning the Russians against American policy towards Iraq very early on. I mean, within within two years after after the Gulf War, um, the Russians, at least in private, uh, had started to take another track. Right, the French took a few years. Uh, more to be persuaded, but they eventually also abandon this um, this uh, American based post Cold War uh, system that had been designed around sort of imposing sanctions and, and weapons inspections on Iraq. Um, it's hard to know exactly what effects the Iraqi actions had. Because, like I said, these were latent tendencies already within France and within Paris. Uh, what is clear is that the Iraqis are, are sort of pushing them to take further action. Uh, and in a number of cases I try to highlight in, in the book, um, it's unclear that the Russians would have taken the actions or the French would have taken the actions they had without Iraqi sort of prodding uh, behind the scenes. And in that way, um, the Iraqis were successful, it seems, in sort of exasperating the the tensions between Paris and Washington or Moscow and, and Washington uh, in a way that had lasting effect because eventually Paris and Moscow will, will abandon the the coalition that they, at least Paris, had been actively a part of and Moscow uh, sort of on the sidelines but supporting from the sidelines. And that this happens well before 9-11 or 2003. What we see in these debates in 2002 and 2003 about the Iraq war um, are really the the consequences uh, of the fractures that happened in, in the 1990s. They're, they're not a post 9-11, for example, uh, phenomenon. They just gain public attention after 9-11. Right. Well, and, and, I, and that's what I found especially interesting because, you know, there are some people who will go back and say that the, the real breaking point in whatever sort of uh, Russian-American cooperation is the Kosovo War of 1999, right? That when, when the Americans, when NATO pushes for action and the Russians refuse to support it in the UN Security Council, right? That's the, that's the, that's the break. But, but your book shows that when it came to Iraq, at least, right, disagreements with the Russians had begun long before 1999, which I found uh, very interesting. But there are a couple things that you bring up in this book for students of international politics that, um, that, I, that I think we're all going to have to sort of struggle with, right? One of them is the role of influence operations, as you describe it, right? That, and as you point out, right, it's not that the Iraqis had to invent disagreements, but they had to be sort of smart enough to see where the cracks were so that they'd know where to drive their wedges. And, and they also had to be, let's say, uh, uh, creative enough that they didn't care whether the wedge they pushed over here and the wedge they pushed over there were in harmony with each other. It was all just try to find as many different ways as possible to drive wedges. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the, the example or the, the, the connection to discussions about the 2016 presidential election in the United States, but this is this larger issue is how as scholars should we try to understand influence operations when we can't draw a direct line from A to B, right? They, they tried to do A and it created result B, but after events happen, we say, wow, there was somebody who was pushing for this. Did you, had you really done much work in your studies or in anything about the notion of influence operations before you started working on this book? Um, no, actually. Um, so I I had discovered this organization, Mm -hmm. uh, this, the Iraqi bath party outside of Iraq, it was 
they use different names, but something along those lines. And um, I was trying to figure out what to do with it mm-hmm. when the 2016 election in the United States occurred. And then I saw, you know, all these reports about what the Russians were doing and all the problems with understanding if that had any effect or not. Um, and then I realized that, you know, the Iraqis didn't have Twitter or, or, or anything like that, but it, it was basically the same strategy to get in, cause chaos, find potential allies on whatever side, it didn't matter, as long as they were going to act in a certain way that was going to be uh, detrimental to the U.S. interests and, and pro-Russian interests or pro uh Pro Iraq to, to to cause this sort of um, this chaos. So then I had to sort of dig into it, um, and there's been you know a number of, of think tank studies and you know some nascent academic work on this since 2016, especially. Mm-hmm. But there, there's not much, um, so I had to really you know think through, uh, especially to get to the the effects. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what does it mean for this to be effective, um, and you know, as I mentioned in the book, what, what I eventually settle on is that there are two levels of effectiveness. One is the kind of operational level where you can create these networks that you need, that when you reach out to to potential allies, somebody answers the phone. Uh, that hadn't always been the case for the Iraqis. In the 1980s, no one cared when the Iraqis tried these types of strategies in the 1980s. Uh, they, they didn't work. But after the Gulf War, really during and after the Gulf War, uh, there were a lot of people around the world uh, who were uneasy with the results of the Gulf War, with the rise of American power. Uh, and so all of a sudden, Iraq found sort of willing collaborators, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I should mention that not all these people knew that they were collaborating with the Iraqis. The Iraqis were working clandestinely. They were saying, hey, I'm just an Iraqi worried about my friends and family back home, right? You know, I have no connection to the regime. And of course, they did uh but but then there's another level so you can tell you can judge on one level hey were they able to create these networks um reach out to people coordinate across uh time and space with with different organizations and that and clearly the iraqis are successful in the 1990s in a way they hadn't been uh, previously the the other level is does this actually affect you know foreign policy right which is a much harder a much harder nut to crack and what you find is that it's, it's, it's almost impossible to, to sort of really drill down. So if you're a political scientist trying to, you know, quantify this, it's going to be really difficult because um, what they did is uh, they played on inclinations that were already there, right? So they would identify, and in fact, you know, they don't always identify. They go in a lot of wrong directions. They're just trying anything, and some of it sticks. Um, and they, they push on a door, and they find that door is open, so they keep pushing. When the Russians or the Muslim Brotherhood or, or someone who's already sort of inclined to, they're already not, not happy with the way uh, things are playing out. The Iraqis can work with that uh, and, and push them even further to say, maybe, you know, go and break a rule or break with the United States openly on, on a subject where even though they had been uh, uncomfortable, they weren't ready to break with Washington openly. And now the Iraqis are pushing them uh to do so. And in a few very important cases, it seems like they're successful in getting these foreign actors to actually break with, with the United States. Right. And, and of course, then the United States is put in the position of having to adapt, right? So the oil for food program is one of these 
adapt adaptations, let's say. So, and, and this gets to the other big question, right? Along with influence operations is the role of economic sanctions um, and the long-term utility of economic sanctions, right? Because I would say that the 1990s uh, and the early 2000s were, they were a real high point of this belief that economic sanctions is something you can do that's not as bad as war. And so you have lots of people who want to show that they're doing something. They say, well, let's, let's put sanctions on. But the problem is that sanctions will affect lots of innocent people. They might not actually affect the guys in charge. And once you put them in place, you've got to decide what's it going to take for you to take them off. Right. We, t- we, we teach coercion theory here at the War College. Right. We talk about how the whole point of deterrence and compellence is you have to communicate with your adversary to know what it is you want them to do. But if you've just sort of put sanctions on because you didn't want to you didn't want to go to a kinetic solution, but you really don't know how you're going to get to the, the point where sanctions can come off, then it becomes self-defeating because eventually they're going to be people, they're going to be like the Russians, like the French, like anybody who's going to say, I'm not going to shut myself off from economic activity with the Iraqis forever. Um, uh, and, and nor do I want to be associated with an economic activity that is starving Iraqis. And so do you think that your work can help us to understand better the, the mechanisms and the, the weaknesses, let's say, of a policy of open-ended economic sanctions? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think this is a classic case where there's a kind of policy strategy mismatch on, on behalf of the United States. Um, and part of it is because the U.S. wasn't expressing its policies clearly internally within the U.S. government. Um the policy that it had as the official policy, at least until 1998, was to to get the Iraqis to comply with the, the Gulf War ceasefire um, agreement. And so it created all these strategies in order to do that, which it had buy-in from within the United States, also buy-in internationally in Paris and, and, and Moscow and everywhere else. The, the reason it didn't work out was because no U.S. president, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, was ever going to be okay with anything other than regime change. So you have a policy, which is basically to achieve a limited political objective, as Clausewitz would say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but you have uh, a goal of, of complete regime change, right? And that's just a recipe for... Um, for a quagmire, right? Uh, and it causes problems. The way these these sanctions were set up at, at the UN is basically everyone trusted the United States in 1990 and 1991 to do the right thing. Uh, and the US set up the sanctions in a way that, the, the sanctions on Iraq, in a way that they would have to be, you'd have to vote the, to take them off, mm-hmm. right? Not vote to continue them, but if you wanted to discontinue them, that required a vote. The result of no action by Security Council would be that everything stays the same because sanctions keep on, on going. And you get to a point where Paris and, and Moscow and, and several other uh, states are, are becoming more and more skeptical of, of these sanctions because they don't think that the U.S. is ever going to allow the Iraqis to comply. And the Iraqis, we should say, never do fully comply, right? right. Uh, so it's not that they're they're innocent here, right? right. But Paris and, and Moscow... They get to the point where they don't want to continue to just keep these sanctions going, uh, uh, you know, with no end in sight. They want to bring Iraq back in, find strategies to bring Iraq back into 
um, the international community. And there's a combination of several reasons here. One is, as you mentioned, these economic sanctions are having horrible effects. At least the, the perception from the outside is right. that they're having horrible effects on um, on Iraqi society. And two, there's a lot of money to be made in Iraq. Uh, Iraq has all of this oil, you know. And the Iraqis are able to sort of use both of these issues, right? Because they would approach people who um, can benefit financially, and they were doing a lot of corrupt things to to funnel money towards journalists, towards uh, politicians, towards all sorts of uh, of actors across the world. But those actors didn't have to say, "Hey, I'm out to you know, we should be making money off Iraq." What they right. all they had to do was say, "Look at the poor, starving Iraqi children," right? And that's a winning sort of that's a winning narrative, right? The, the narrative of, "Hey, let's let's rehabilitate Saddam Hussein and let's get Iraqi oil back on the market." That's not something that's going to sell very well. Uh, what will sell well is look at the poor, starving Iraqi children. Can't we do something? We're going to have to alleviate sanctions. The fact that I'm going to make a lot of money off this uh, is something that they don't have to actually say that's right that's um, a that's a happy a, a happy uh subsidiary effect of saving iraqi children yes and we should say that it's not just that the narratives are combined the actual sort of strategies of iraq and the institutions that they're using to enact these strategies uh are similar right so the same organizations that are going around and trying to conduct these influence operations by spreading propaganda building networks to oppose sanctions on a humanitarian level are also sniffing out Who's going to help us if we really if we approach somebody uh, with a big paycheck? Who's going to take that and and, and who's not? Right. Um, and so you know they're building these networks, different politicians and journalists, uh, and it's only because they have those networks that they can go out and start to bribe people and, and use this corruption to get people to comply with what the Iraqis want them to do. Right. Well, and this gets to the, the question of you know, when it, when it's clear that sanctions can't last forever. And they, you know this, you know I would argue that you know leaving aside right the the, the specific impact of nine eleven certainly by by two thousand two there's the, the 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 cracks in the sanctions regime are so apparent that it's hard to imagine that sanctions are going to be able to go on much longer. Did the Iraqis think that ending ending the sanctions regime was going to save Saddam's regime? Um, how seriously did they take the possibility that some Americans, for example, might say sanctions won't last forever? So I guess we better go to that military solution that we'd been that we'd been avoiding, right? Did the did the Iraqis did, did they take that into account in their concerns, or did they think that breaking up the international coalition against them might save the regime? Um, they definitely didn't take that into account. Um, <laughs> okay. They thought that listen, we'll break up this regime that has us sort of contained and and as you mentioned by 2002 it's it's pretty much gone right there 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 were some sort of narratives floating around um and the, you, you still hear them that containment was working right iraq was contained that, that's not true right uh that that was true in 1995 right by by 2002 that containment regime is is basically gone right i mean inspectors are not in the country iraq the Iraqi economy is booming, right? Um, the Russians and the French are openly, openly defying, uh, you know, UN Security Council resolutions and are insisting that they are not going to allow the Security Council to put any more restrictions on Iraq, no matter what Iraq does or doesn't do. Um, and the Iraqis saw this as their way forward. They're going to slowly break out. Uh, their economy is recovering. Their diplomatic, um, their diplomatic status is is recovering. It's normalizing. Um, and they saw this as, as the way to 
to the future. They didn't anticipate that. Uh, first of all, they didn't anticipate 9-11 and what that would do, right, in the United States, or that the Americans, even after 9-11, would be so bold as to try to go and, and overthrow the regime. Um, partly, they misunderstood American politics. They misunderstood the resolve of the George W. Bush administration after 9-11. Uh, they probably overestimated its competence, right? Thinking that, uh, you know, this is just a horrible idea. Why would the Americans <laughs> do something so stupid, right? As to, what, After they overthrow us, they would have to rule this country and they're never going to be able to do it. Um, and so, you know, there's been all these, these interviews with, with senior Iraqi leaders, right? Uh, military chief of staff of the military, head of intel- military intelligence. Uh, and, and one by one, they all said, no, we had no idea. Uh, until the end, we, we thought there's no way that the Americans are going to march on Baghdad uh, and and overthrow um, the regime. Too bad. The, the Iraqis obviously had read too many realists who assumed that states only operate according to their material interest. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, and, and, but I, and, you know, as, as 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 odd as that conclusion is, right? It's a, I think it's a very important one for us to think about. This right is that the Iraqis were pushing hard against the restraints against them, and for a decade, they had been pushing with sort of incremental success, and they hadn't created any kind of there hadn't been any significant blowback. So one could see where they might have assumed that there would be no blowback coming. Can you imagine, and uh, we, we, you know, neither of us is in the counterfactual business, but what would happen if the United States had not pushed for war? If the United States had, say, allowed the fact that the UN Security Council wasn't going to give them the same kind of resolution in 2002 that they produced in 1990, what would have happened had the United States chosen, not chosen the path of war in 2003? Would the United States then have had to take a, essentially a diplomatic defeat by acquiescing in the dismantling of the sanctions regime what would we have done yeah i mean i i think that the u.s would have had to reconsider its its policies there 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 was no way that containment was going to continue iraq was going to be normalized um and the u.s would have had to been okay with that um if it had stepped back and decided even either in the 1990s or in early 2000s that that was actually going to be uh the achievable objective, um, they probably could have shaped their, their policies and strategies in a way that, um, that, that wouldn't have left Iraq as completely a rogue actor, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if they had given Iraq an off ramp, a way to sort of not fully comply, but at least, you know, offer some sort of assurances for the future, they could have gotten something right. Um, but without a war, or, or something else like that, something pretty extreme, uh, Iraq was on the path towards normalization, right? Um, they weren't going, the, the, the idea that it was just going to be a continued status quo uh, um, is not true. Now, the war was, you know, horrible. I don't want to say this and say that, you know, that's some sort of justification sure. for the war. It wasn't, right? The, 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 the cost of that war, uh, there's no way that, the, that they're ever going to be uh, approach you know, whatever minor benefits we, we got out of it right. um, for all sides. 
Um, but th- that being said, the choices were not easy, right? The choices were not just continue to contain Iraq. That was not going to be uh, a possibility moving forward in 2002 and 2003. Right. Well, and that's what I, I'm, I'm recently reading of Robert Kaplan's book, The Tragic Mind. And we've been, uh, been talking about how the, the toughest choices the states been have to make are between uh not between sort of good and bad or good and evil, but between different kinds of goods, or at least you know, that these choices are not simple. And so, for the United States, this is where I think is a to, as we as we wrap up this conversation, right? The, the the central irony that you point out in the book that I think is worth reflecting on is the George W. Bush's New World Order was centered, whether we intended it to be or not, on Iraq. Right? Iraq was the 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 event. The the, the expulsion of Iraq from Kuwait was the event that is supposed to create this new world order. And the success in dealing with Iraq was really the test case, right? Would it be possible for to rehabilitate, to punish and then rehabilitate a rogue actor? Um, and the the Iraqis succeed in frustrating those plans. And then the United States succeeds in uh, essentially undermining what's left by then deciding to act outside of the new world order that was promised in 1990. And so you put those two things together and you end up with the world after 2003 and all of the things that flowed from it, which you could say include both political turmoil in the United States, incredible death and destruction in Iraq, and also an emboldened Russia, which also is openly contemptuous of talk about a rules-based liberal order because they're saying, you know, you guys in Washington had been breaking these rules and, and, and didn't, you didn't mean it. So why should we care? Um, and so, so what lessons can we take away from the collapse of this order? When we think about dealing with other actors, when, when the United States thinks about dealing with other actors where we have these sort of open-ended, um, uh, open-ended hostilities. We think about our relationship with Iran, where we talk about sanctions, where we our, our relationship with, with Russia. Um, how should the United States, do you think, approach long-term rivalries or long-term relationships like that in light of how things turned out with Iraq? Yeah, so I think there's a few big lessons. Uh, the first uh, that I think is probably most important to me uh, is that even minor states, minor powers like Iraq, uh, get a vote mm-hmm. and they can have significant influence, right? You go back to, you know, I'm a historian, but if you go back to IR scholars, you know, it's typically these great powers that get to sort of just manage world affairs, right? Um, but what I try to show in this book is that actually Iraq is a you know, middling state at best, um, but it has a tremendous effect on the, the international system, partly, as you mentioned, because the Americans put it at the center of of right. uh, a broader um, international order, right? But that the other side gets a vote, right? And all the retrospects on on this war that are coming out now, almost all of them are what did the United States do or what the United States didn't do, uh, you know, um, what the United States didn't do. But Iraqis did a lot, uh, and, and those had uh, those had an effect. Um, the on a similar note, not everybody is going to agree with the United States completely, even if there are allies, right? And we need to be able to take our allies' interest and feelings and positions uh, seriously, and, and be able to compromise with them in a way that that we didn't uh, really in the 1990s. And finally, 
the the U.S. if it's going to have a policy uh, of regime change or a policy of getting another state to sort of um, change its actions, right? Um, we need to be clear what it is that we want, right? And we have to be able to accept. Uh, if it's something less than regime change, right, we have to be able to accept that that's all we're going to get, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that we're, we're not, if we don't have any viable strategies for regime change, that we're going to have to accept something less than that, right? We have to decide, you know, are we going to be okay with the Iranian regime or not? And if we want to be done with the Iranian regime, then fine, you have to figure out some way to do that. I'm not saying we should, right? I'm just saying, that, you know, if we're, if we're not, right, if we're saying, okay, we're, we're not going to overturn the Iranian regime, then we have to be willing to live with the Iranian regime, right? Uh, we're going to face a similar a similar situation in Russia uh, uh, eventually, right? If Putin survives, uh, what, what are we going to do, right? Are we going to continue to sort of treat him as a pariah as it's going to be a, or not, right? Um, do we want to get rid of Putin? In which ways we'll have to uh, create some strategies to do that, right? Or, um, or are we not going to get rid of Putin? And if we, if we, if we have strategies that aren't designed to get rid of Putin, but we're never going to be okay with Putin, then that's a recipe for disaster, right? right. Uh, and that was, I think, the, the main lesson from the from the U.S. side uh, in the 1990s, leading up to 2003. Uh, we were never we had strategies designed um, to get Saddam to change his ways to comply with a certain number of demands, uh, but we were never going to be okay. Uh, even if he okay with with him ruling Iraq, even if he did comply, right. right? And so we have to get these things in order as we look at future problems. Right, clarity is important, right? And I would like to think that that people will get more clarity understanding the road to war in Iraq after they read Iraq Against the World. Sam Helfont, there's a lot more we could talk about, but I like uh, this is an important place to stop for for today at least. But uh, thanks so much for coming on a better piece to talk about your book. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. And so. Uh, I should say Iraq Against the World from Oxford University Press will be released on April 7th. For those of you who are interested in getting your copies, uh, thank you for joining us for this conversation with Sam Helfand. Thanks for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you to hear about, uh, to talk about our complex world and about the need to develop more strategic clarity in the way the United States thinks about its place in the world. Please, uh, uh, subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice because you know you want to. And after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast so that uh, more people can find out about us. Uh, we look forward to welcoming you to our next conversation. Um, and until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.